Yeah, and the reason that we cling to that cross is not anything special in the wood itself. It's a symbol of the death that was paid for us, that Christ died on that cross, and and we cling to that because that is our only hope of salvation. Can you turn this down a little bit, Eric, please? Thank you. Well, Daniel is 85 years old in Daniel chapter 10, which is going to be the focus of our study this morning, Daniel chapter 10. The year is uh, 536 B.C. at the beginning of this chapter. Uh, Two years earlier, 538 B.C., Cyrus, King Cyrus had ordered that the Jews could return to the Jerusalem temple. A huge, um, a huge thing for the Jews. And they would be able to restore worship there. And so he sent back several of the Jews. So Daniel now in his 80s uh, did not go back with them. Maybe he was too old to travel with them back to Jerusalem. Long, long trip. Um, or it could be that he just was there in Babylon to help serve the king. Uh, but we do know that Daniel is in Babylon because of verse 4. It talks about him at the bank of the Tigris River. And so Daniel does, is not going back to Jerusalem. He's going to die in Babylon. Well, uh, King Cyrus was in the third year of his reign over Persia. And in this year, 536 B.C., And Daniel here in chapter 10 receives a visit from a messenger of God and he explains to Daniel several things that are going to happen about the future of Israel, both near future for Daniel and distant future and still for us, uh, the future of Israel. That's what chapters 10 through 12 are about. It's a message from God to Daniel about what's going to happen for Israel's future. And so this chapter here, Chapter 10 is the beginning of this and it helps us to see the preparation that God is going to give him for this great revelation. The, the focus of, our, uh, of this vision, this revelation, is going to be next week when we get into the content of that uh, vision. And so I'd encourage you to read chapter 11 next week in its entirety and maybe write down some questions even that you might have of the passage so that we can uh, try to work through that together. So this morning, let me read our passage. It begins in Daniel chapter 10 with verse 1. This is the Word of God. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks, and I did not eat any tasty food, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. On the twenty-fourth day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris River, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of euphaz. His body also was like beryl, His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. While the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great fear fell on them and they ran away to hide themselves. 
So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, Your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for twenty-one days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. When he had spoken to me, according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me, And he said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now as soon as he spoke to me, I I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. God has been revealing to us some of what will take place in the future and God is going to do something very similar this morning and particularly next week and the following week. God occasionally will give us a glimpse into what is going on behind the scenes. We are very tangible people. We believe and understand the things that we see and hear and know, but it's hard for us to conceive of something that's behind the scenes. And yet God here is essentially pulling back the curtains for us to see what is going on with regard to the activity of Daniel's day and also what's going to happen Uh, in the future of Daniel's people, Israel. So, let's begin by looking at the setting for God's special revelation in verses 1-3. to The setting for God's special revelation. And it is Daniel's concern for the people of God. Daniel learns about a great conflict that's going on according to verses 1 and 2. Uh, Verse 1, the middle of the verse says, And the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood. So he learns of this great conflict that's going on, and apparently it's a conflict that's going on uh, against his people, the Jews. The Jews, remember, most of them are back in Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple. They've been working on this for two years, but they're receiving some opposition. 
And Daniel finds out about it and recognizes that this is not a part of the hand of God. That is, God's not opposing the rebuilding of the temple. But there's something else in play. And so here he learns, and then will learn, is that there's an angelic conflict that is going on behind the scenes. An angelic conflict that is between God's angels and Satan's angels, known as demons. The circumstances surrounding the vision is that Daniel has been mourning for three weeks in verse 2. For three entire weeks, Daniel has been mourning. Apparently, he's concerned about the conflicts that were going on with the people of Jerusalem, and so he spends three full weeks mourning before God and fasting and praying. And we know he's praying because of verse 12. Look at verse 12. Then he said to me, this messenger of God, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from... For from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling, humbling yourself before God, your words were heard. So it wasn't just that he was moaning, complaining, and in grief over what was happening with the Jews. It was that he was praying to God and asking for God to intercede on behalf of the people. So that provides for us the setting, the first three verses of God's special revelation. Now, in verses 4-9, through nine, we are introduced to... Uh, this person. We call this the revelation of God's person. Daniel gets a view of the supremacy of God. Here in verses 4 to 9, Daniel is visited by a messenger. And uh, verse 5, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. His body was uh, also like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words were like the sound of a tumult. The sound of a roaring thunder. Some people would argue that this, was, this messenger was an angel, but notice how he's described here. That he has the eyes of flaming fire, that he has these words that are like a roaring thunder. His, his, uh, his face is like the appearance of lightning. And that seems to be a description of the Christ. That is, the Son of God before He became flesh. Turn back to Revelation. I'll show you why I think this is actually Christ who visits Daniel and not an angel. We could call Him the angel of the Lord. That's how he's referred to in the Old Testament, but not just an ordinary angel like Michael or Gabriel or one of the others, but rather actually God Himself, God the Son, coming to Daniel in person in the form of a human or in uh, what, what theologians call a Christophany, a, an appearance of Christ before His birth. Look at chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 13. And notice how John sees a very similar person here in Revelation. Let's start with verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, or we could say the roaring waters, the tumult. In his right hand he had seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. 
So what you should notice there is a few of these features that John notices and and describes are similar to the features that Daniel notices and describes. So you can turn back to Daniel chapter 1. There's another passage in Ezekiel chapter 1 where you see something very similar. We, we're not going to turn there, but um, but the point is I, I think that this is referring in Daniel chapter 10, this is referring to the pre-incarnate Christ. In verse 7, the other men are terrified. Uh, they don't see the vision themselves, but they're terrified. And this is not unusual in the Scriptures. Remember when Saul was on the road to Damascus, he uh, he understood Christ's voice. He saw the light, but the other men, uh, they didn't see it as brilliantly as Saul saw it, saw it and they didn't understand the voice. Uh, this happens also when um, God the Father speaks to Jesus audibly in John chapter 12. The multitude around Him think that it's just thunder. And yet, Jesus actually discerns a voice in there and recognizes that God is speaking to Him. And so this, this often is the case that God speaks to one person like this in the Old Testament and then the other people don't quite understand what's going on, but they're certainly afraid. Notice Daniel's response to the visit in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 says, So I was left alone, I saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me. For my natural color turned a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, and with my face to the ground. As I've argued before, I think that Daniel actually passes out from just dreadful fear of this great God that he comes into contact with. He recognizes who it is and he hears him speaking and he falls down on his face into a deep sleep and passes out. Well, uh, in verses 10 to the end of the chapter, we see the revelation of God's message. God now reveals something to Daniel before he gets into all the detail of Israel's future. He wants him to know something about what is going on behind the scenes in Israel today. That is, in Daniel's day. So God reveals this angelic conflict. In verses 10 to 12, we see an answer to Daniel's prayer. Remember, Daniel has been praying and fasting and mourning for three weeks, according to verse 2. And here God responds to him by sending him the Son of God. Now, again, I'm suggesting that this is the Son of God, but some other uh, well-meaning and godly people believe that this is an angel. And I believe actually the translators of our text in front of us, the New American Standard translators believe that this was an angel as well. And the reason that I know they think that is because of verse 12. Verse 12 says, Then he said to me, and notice the he is lowercase, and so they would take this not as the Christ. If they took it as the Christ, they'd put a capital letter H there for he, um, but instead they do the lowercase, likely thinking that this is an angel. And the reason that they and many other scholars believe that this was an angel is because Notice what he does in verse 11. Um, or, or notice how he describes himself. Verse 11, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright. Notice these words. For I have now been sent to you. He says the same thing at the end of verse 12. I have come in response to your words. So this messenger is coming being sent from God. He's sent from God to Daniel. And so the scholars, other, other godly people would say, well, you know, if he's sent by God, then it has to be an angel. That's what the very nature of an angel. In fact, the word angel means messenger. And so it has to be an angel. second reason they think that this is an angel is because of verse 13. 
Notice the prince of the... I was sent to come to you, Daniel, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. The reason I haven't been here before is because I've been, be, I've been opposed by this prince of Persia, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And so if, if this person is being opposed, it cannot be Christ. Christ cannot be opposed. It has to be an angel. That's what they would argue. And then the third reason that they think this is an angel is because of verse 13 at the end. It says, For I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Um, uh, I'm sorry. Let's start at the beginning of verse 13. But the prince of, Persia, prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Okay, would Christ ever be helped in any way? Would He ever be ministered to? That's why they, they would say this is an angel. But I would suggest to you that this is the Christ that this is the Son of God, and I would say so for five reasons. Number one, the fact that He was sent by God does not mean He didn't come from God. Or, or the fact that He was sent by God does not mean that He cannot be God. Okay? Remember in, in the New Testament, in John 8.16, listen to how Jesus describes His ministry. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, for I am the Father who sent Me. So he's saying, the Father has sent me into the world. No one would deny that, Christ, that God sent the, the Son. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. We say that. And John, John's Gospel has ten other times in which Jesus describes Himself as the one who is sent from the Father. So there's nothing wrong with this person here in Daniel 10 being sent from God. Secondly, it is no problem for Christ to be opposed for three weeks. Right? He says, I would have come to you earlier, Daniel, but I've been opposed for three weeks. We might say, well, that must mean Christ is weak. We're going to talk about that more later. But, but has there ever been a time in Christ's life, let's think about the time in which He was on the earth, was there ever a time when He was po- opposed for more than 21 days? And immediately you should think of Matthew chapter 4, which is the time in which He was tempted by Satan. He's being opposed by Him. And I think something very similar is happening, happening here except for in the heavenly places. Thirdly, it's no problem for this to be Christ, and it's no problem for Christ to be helped by an angel, right? That we, we saw in verse twelve or verse thirteen, you know, Michael had to come and help him. It sounds like Jesus is weak or, or Christ, the Son of God, is weak, but remember at the end of Jesus' temptation in Matthew chapter four that the angels came to minister to him. Okay, we would not argue that, that he was he was incompetent by any means, but it's completely appropriate for the angels to minister to Christ and to serve Him and to accomplish His purposes. So for those three reasons, I would say that this is the Christ. The fourth reason is that Christ is the one whom Daniel saw in verses 5 and 6. Right? He had the eyes of flaming fire, His face was like lightning, His feet were with polished bronze. And so, uh, if Christ is the one He saw in verses 5 and 6, it would make sense that, that this is the same person that talked to Him in verses 10 and following. And the fifth reason I think this is Christ and not an angel is because of chapter 11, verse 1. Skip down to 11, verse 1. And notice what he says at the end of his conversation with Daniel. He says, In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and protection for him. And the him there is referring to the angel Michael who is the angel who is in charge of the people of Israel who he's been talking about in the rest of chapter 10. We'll, we'll see that here in just a minute. Okay, so, but if, 
if you recognize who Michael is in the big scheme of God's program and in his, his hierarchy, we have Michael as the archangel. We don't have any other angels that are listed as an archangel. There may be other archangels, but Michael, we know, is an archangel, if not the archangel, the greatest of angels. So who would it be? Who would God send to help someone, to protect someone of such high status as Michael the archangel? And I would say no other angel would be qualified to do that, to protect him, to have power to to help him in that way. Um, Only the Christ could. And so that's why I think this is Christ. So the, the reason that's important for us is because when we look at this message, when God comes to respond to His people, He comes in the person of Jesus Christ. He comes in the person of Christ, the pre-incarnate Son of God, coming to help Daniel, saying, listen, Daniel, I'm with you. I'm with your people. I haven't abandoned you. I'm, I'm sending my best representative, Christ Himself. God wants Daniel to know that He cares for him. Well, in verses 13 and 14, we have a vision of uh, the future of Israel. And he begins by in verse 13 by telling him about this delay that's happened. And remember, Christ is being opposed here for 21 days by this prince. Notice verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia was, was withstanding me for 21 days. So, I have suggested that the identity of the messenger is Christ and it could be an angel. I, I will admit that, that. That's a possibility, but I believe it's Christ. But either way, who has the power to oppose such a high being as Christ or an angel? Who has the, that kind of power? Do we as humans have the power to oppose someone like that? And I would suggest to you that this prince of the kingdom of Persia is not a person. That is not a person, a, a human being. It is a person, a demon. It is a, an evil angel, a fallen angel. The prince of the kingdom of Persia is the demon who stands behind the king of Persia. That's where we start to see what's behind the scenes. See, we see all the tangible things for Israel. This kingdom of Persia, this king of Persia is opposing Israel. But what God is saying here is there's actually a prince behind him. A demon that stands behind this king who is opposing Israel. That tells us something very profound. That the opposition that Daniel's people were facing in the rebuilding of Jerusalem was not finally a human opposition. It was human opposition for sure. They felt it. They heard it. They experienced it. But it was actually sourced in a demonic attack. That was um, that was brought about by Satan himself. So how is it? I, I suggested that Christ is being opposed by de- demons and that he's actually being delayed in helping Daniel. How is it that, that Christ could be opposed in that way? I mean, if we believe that God is in control of all things, and we do because the scriptures are clear about it, does that mean that Christ cannot be opposed or even delayed? Let's imagine for the sake of argument that this is a messenger that is an angel rather than the Christ Himself. Okay, What if the, the angel were being opposed? What if, it, what if the angel was being delayed? Well, ultimately we say that, that actually God is being opposed in that way because God had a, a reason to send them. You see, when a demon is opposing a righteous angel that was sent to do God's work, that doesn't mean that God is weak. 
or that God is misguided, or maybe that he underestimated what was needed to overcome the opposition? Of course not. You see, to call into question God's sending of an angel or any kind of messenger who is being delayed by a demon is to call into question God's power and His authority. And so, it is no problem for us to say that God has has one of His angels, or in this case, even Christ Himself being opposed. You might be thinking, well, I thought God was all-powerful. I mean, He seems kind of limited here if He's being opposed, if Christ Himself is being opposed by a demon. But just because God is all-powerful doesn't mean that He uses all of His power all the time. Do you understand the difference between the two? That that God can still be all-powerful and yet not use all of His power all the time. Or if He did, we'd all be consumed or all the wicked would be consumed immediately. The point is that Christ is being opposed here and delayed by a demon and it does not undermine the power and authority of God. It simply shows that God has everything under control, even the opposition against what He is seeking to do. Even the fact that these demons are opposing Him. Listen to Luke 22.53. This is Jesus speaking to the chief priests and the officers and the elders who come to arrest Him. Listen to what He says to them. He says, This hour and the power of darkness are yours. In other words, for a time, you have it. You have the stage. You win. Okay, but ultimately, they weren't, win, they weren't going to win finally and fully. Why? Because God had, was going to have the final victory through the resurrection. So, Christ can be opposed here by a demon and it's no problem through the sovereignty of God. The purpose of Christ's visit is in verse 14. I've come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision pertains to the days yet future. What Christ wants to understand, what Daniel to understand, is the near future for Israel as well as the distant future. So when, you, when we go through this together over the next two weeks, um, we need to recognize that this is primarily directed at Israel, not the church. And we'll talk about that more next week. Daniel's response to the initial vision is that he became weak again. He had no strength left in him, he says, verses 15 to 17. And I think he probably passed out again. Notice what he says when he comes to uh, verse 16. Behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips, and I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can a ser- such a servant of my Lord, talk with such as my Lord. So how can someone like me talk to someone like you who is so great? As I mentioned a few weeks ago, I think this will be our primary response when we are in the presence of God the Father and Christ. We will have something to say like this. That our thoughts will not be about how great we are or how blessed it was for God to have us on His team, but more like, God, why have You, the Almighty and Holy God, not consumed me with the fire of Your wrath? I do not deserve to stand before You. And we will lie in our face, lie down on our face, speechless, perhaps passed out, perhaps trying to speak like you maybe do in your dream when someone's chasing you. You can't say anything because you're so fearful. I think that's the kind of fear the healthy fear we will have of God because we recognize the great power that He can wield and yet He withholds it from us. We will have no breath like Daniel left in us. 
and no strength found in our bodies when we stand before the Almighty God. Well, God gives a little bit more detail in verses ten, uh, verses 18 and following. Again, Daniel's weakness is seen again in verses 18 and 19. He needs strength to understand these things. He has to be touched and strengthened by this one, the Christ. And the same thing is true for us. You know, we we can't we don't have any strength within ourselves spiritually. We need the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds. And Daniel learns about the spiritual warfare that's going on on behalf of Israel. Look at verse 19. O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And he said, Do you understand why I come to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. Remember, I said the prince of Persia, I believe, is a demon here that's, that's, um, that is basically behind the king of Persia. Christ says to Daniel, Listen, there's a spiritual warfare that's going on against Israel by the demons. More than just human opposition, but demonic opposition is opposing Israel. And I promise to do battle with this demon of Persia that is opposing you. Daniel, I want you to know that there is a spiritual battle going on. You know what they're fighting over, Daniel? They're fighting over the souls of Israel and the progress of God's plan. This battle between Christ and the prince of the kingdom of Persia would go on for 200 years until another prince would come along to empower the, prince, the, the king of Greece, Alexander the Great. We see this here in verse 20. second part of the verse, he says, So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly against these forces except Michael, your prince. Here what he's saying is that the prince of Persia is not going to last forever. This demon that's behind the people of Persia who are opposing Israel, he's not going to stand forever. But another prince is going to come along, another demon. And it's going to, he's going to be empowering this king of Greece. And we know that the case is because of chapter 11, which we'll look at next week as we learn more about Alexander the Great and his rise to power and then his fall from, from the throne. God is letting Daniel behind the scenes to see what kind of battles go on in the heavenly places. And we need to understand that there is a level of power and authority that God allows. But all of Satan's power is under God's control. In other words, no one can do anything that would thwart his plan. Yes, God allows for evil to take place and even has control over all those things but no one can do anything to thwart His plan. No one can usurp His authority finally and fully. In Daniel 4, when God's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, He says, or, uh, it says that God does as He pleases with the powers of heaven. That God can do whatever He wants, not only with human beings, but also with the powers of heaven, the angels of heaven, the, the heavenly places. And in this special revelation that we get in in Daniel 10, we learn about a three-tier opposition to the people of Israel. If there is a three-tier opposition to the people of Israel, certainly there is a human opposition, Persia and Greece. But there's also another tier that we don't see, and that is this demon 
that is behind this king of Persia and this king of Greece. And then the third tier, obviously, is Satan himself. That Satan is called by God in His Word the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. And 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God, small g, of this age or this world. So under God's authority is Satan's authority. He has some kind of limit, some kind of a leash to rule this world in the way that he wants now according to the curse that's been brought upon it. Underneath Satan's authority is this prince that we learned about in 1020, this demon behind the Persia and Greece. And then under that demon is the human opposition. And this is an amazing revelation for us because we tend to see only what is tangible. But God wants us to see that there is an unseen world that has a raging battle between the powers of evil and the powers of righteousness. It's like when Elisha was going into battle and his servant couldn't see. We're not going to be able to beat these these enemies. And Elisha said in 2 Kings 6.17, O Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And he's able to see this huge host of heavenly armies that were on their side helping them in battle. See, we're not going to get a supernatural vision like Elisha's servant. We're not going to get a vision from God like Daniel did. But we do have a supernatural vision by means of God's revealed truth recorded for us in the pages of God's Word. So let me give you six principles and one point of application as we conclude this morning. Six principles and one application. Number one, first principle. There are spiritual forces of Satan that are working against your pursuit of God's will and purposes. What we can draw from this is that we are not Israel, okay? But you can be sure that there are spiritual forces that are opposing you. And the reason I know that's the case is because First Peter tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And if Satan is prowling around, would not many of his demons be doing the same? That they would be doing his bidding, trying to attack you and move you off course. And Satan's primary goal, I believe, is not to make evil people more evil. That may be one of his goals. But I think his primary goal is to thwart the plan of God. And he tries to do that by opposing the people who are faithful to God. He wants you to give up He wants you to believe that following God is worthless. He wants you to get discouraged in testing. He wants you to think that God is withholding goodness from you. I think that's His primary focus of attack on us. But friends, if you ever question God's goodness, you look no further than Romans 8.32. He who did not spare God, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? If you don't see God's love for you in all the circumstances of life or any circumstances of life, go back to what He did for you on the cross. That's why we sing about the cross. That's why we love it and we cling to it. Why? Because that's where God gave up His Son for us. That's where He showed His greatest love. He doesn't have to do anything else for you to show you His love. You just have to be reminded about the cross. Now, God's gracious and He constantly is doing so. He's not being rude or evil to you. God is is your Father. 
if you have trusted in Christ. And that means He's always going to give you good gifts. And the only, the only thing we have to see is that Christ, He gave up His greatest possession for you at the cross. You don't have to, ever have to doubt His love for you. But Christians, there is a spiritual warfare going on. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers and the powers and the world forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Our primary battle is otherworldly. It's not here. And our job is to resist. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 6. Consider that passage. At some time this week, Ephesians 6. When you have done all, stand firm. Your job is not to defeat the demons. Your job is not to pray them out of here. Your job is to stand your ground. Hold your ground. Don't fall back into despair that God hates you. Don't fall back into the idea that following God is not worth it. Stand your ground, hold your faith, and you do that with all these various pieces of armor that you put on so that you can guard yourself against the wiles of the devil who is trying to devour you. The curtain has been opened for you to see this morning that there is a real spiritual battle going on between the demons and the angels. And they're battling over your soul. And they're battling over this church and this city and over the scattered Jews and over countless people who are following God today. Listen to Abraham Kuyper on this issue. He said, If once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range, that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there. That's where the real conflict is waged. Our earthly struggles drone in its backlash. There is a real spiritual battle going on in the heavenly places. Number two, God is not unaware of the wicked spiritual forces. God is not surprised by this. God is not uh, unconcerned about this. We don't have to be afraid because... If we are in Christ, God is on our side. And what can man or demon do to you? If God is for you, who can be against you? God is not unaware of these spiritual wicked forces. Number three, God's army is more powerful than Satan's army. God does as He pleases within the hosts of heaven and the people on earth. That's what He told to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. God does whatever He pleases. He's not surprised by this. It's not like, oh, I really hope God has enough power to overcome these. He's already have, he already has a plan. He's going to reveal that plan to us in Daniel chapter 11, book of Revelation. We know what that plan is. So we don't have to fear that God is going to lose. Number four, the battle between God's angels and Satan's demons will rage until the battle of Armageddon. This spiritual battle that has been going on since the fall, all the way until the end of the, of the battle of Armageddon, it's going to keep raging. It's going to rage over your soul. It's going to rage over every soul. 
The name's the name of Christ. And amazingly, God for us this morning has pulled back the curtains and given us a glimpse beyond the tangible to the intangible battle that's going on behind the scenes between the forces of angels and the forces of demons. Number five, Daniel's one of Daniel's main points, his book, his prophecy, is that God's people are never alone. God's people are never alone, even when it feels like it. Right? Do you, do you think Daniel was temp, temp, tempted to feel alone sitting in the lion's den? Well, if he were, it went away pretty quickly because he was protected from the very mouths of the lions and very likely Christ Himself was there with them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are walking around the fiery furnace and they were not alone. God was with them. Daniel wasn't alone in his, his anguish, his desire to see Israel restored, Jerusalem restored, all this conflict, God. God's saying, listen, you know these last 21 days you've been mourning and fasting and praying and think, thinking nothing's happening up here? We have a huge battle going on for the very same thing you're praying for. Friends, you are never alone. You may think, when I pray for this, I'm the only one praying for this. God doesn't seem to care. And yet for that whole time and longer, God has been fighting for that very thing. Number six, Christ will win because Christ has won. Christ will win because Christ has won. It's the difference between D-Day and World War II and V-E Day. D-Day was where they, the troops went into Normandy and there were still lots of casualties to be had. They had lots more battle to do. But the war was over. Okay? It was effectively over. The, the Allies had won. The Axis, the Axis were going to lose. It was only a matter of time. V-E Day is the final victory. That's what we look forward to. See, that's the difference between Christ's cross. That's the victory. He defeated death. The, the, the resurrection proves it. And VE Day is the final resurrection. When, when Christ will win. He will restore the earth. He will, he will uh, provide and, and accomplish all the promises that He has made. Finally, application. We overcome the powers of Satan. We can overcome the powers of Satan. If there's a spiritual realm that is active with warfare over our souls and over our church and over the purposes and plans of God, what can we possibly do? And the Scriptures tell us that we can overcome. Turn to Revelation 12. We'll finish here. Revelation 12. Okay, Bill read from us, read for us earlier from chapter 11. Here in chapter 12, we have this great conflict going on in the tribulation, the period that's right before the Battle of Armageddon. It culminates in the Battle of Armageddon and then the Millennial Kingdom. What are we to do against Satan's attack? He's seeking to devour us. How can we possibly defeat him? Truth is, we can't. But we can overcome. And we overcome, we're told, the same way the tribulation saints overcome in verse 11. Start in verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they, the tribulation saints, overcame Him, Satan, because 
of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. How do believers overcome Satan during the tribulation? And how do we overcome Satan today? And the answer is found there in verse 11, by the blood of the Lamb. They overcame him on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. So when Satan tempts me, Jacob, you are not worthy of heaven. You are a dirty, rotten, low-down, double-crossing, no-good sinner. My answer is not, well, actually, I've done a lot of good things and let me show you all the good things that I've done for God. That's not my answer. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Him there who made an end to all my sin. I am an overcomer because of nothing that I have done. I overcome Satan because of the mercy of Jesus Christ in salvation. We overcome on the basis of the blood of Jesus alone, not on any works which we have done, but according to His mercy. See, we can't overpower Satan, but we can't overcome him through the blood of the Lamb because Christ has won. And the way that you can do that today, if you haven't, is by trusting in His finished work. God, I have nothing in my hands to bring. Naked here before Your face. Helpless, I cry out for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You come to Christ recognizing that God will accept nothing that you have done, but only your belief in Jesus as the finished work. That He has taken the, the, the payment that was due to your account. That you should have paid, that I should have paid because of our sin. Christ has taken that upon Himself at the cross. And He paid for that. He died. He shouldn't have died. right? He did, he did nothing wrong. He was completely perfect his entire life. He didn't deserve death. And yet He took upon our sins so that He could die. And His death provided atonement for our sins. It covered over the sins that we had committed. And if you trust in Christ alone and on His resurrection, the Bible says you will be saved. You can only overcome Satan through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us never to get tired of diving into the depths of Your Word and of Your mercy. The grace that You showed us in salvation. Not only did Your mercy save us, but it is the power by which we overcome Satan. We overcome by making it to the next life and showing Satan that it was worth it to follow Christ. It was worth it to give up everything in this life for the sake of gaining an eternal treasure. So Lord, I pray that You would increase our resolve to follow You, increase our faith, increase the focus of our faith so that it is not defective and focused on the wrong things, the circumstances of life, the, the changing aspects of, of our, uh, our daily activities. But help us to have our faith fixed on our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who died for us and gave His life as a ransom for many. Lord, we 
fall before You and are amazed at Your greatness. And Lord, when we see You for all that You are, I think we will be trembling and we will likely pass out from fear. But You allow us to stand before You and even command us to come before You boldly because we come on the basis of Jesus. We have nothing to fear in that sense. You are the great God who is a consuming fire and You had every right to consume us with Your wrath, but because of Christ's sacrifice, we can trust in that and be freed from underneath Your wrath and also be given a place at Your table, a part of Your family. And so we praise You for that. We we cannot stop thanking You for what You've done for us in that way. And Lord, help us to thank You with our lives. We recognize that there is a real spiritual warfare going on over our souls and over our church and over this city, the souls of people that we know. And it's terrifying to think such great powers are fighting for our soul, but we recognize that there are also great powers fighting on our behalf as well and that You are on our side and that we have nothing to fear because You are with us. And so we pray that You would help us to have our confidence in You and not to to uh, dive too deeply into the things that You have not revealed, but but to hold tightly to the truth that You have revealed and to recognize that we can only fight in this battle by resisting, by standing firm in our faith. Pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.